There you have another episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero and hosted by the Heroes Media Group. This is a very special, well, I guess they're all special, actually. This particular interview, uh, some United States Air Force aviator Vietnam veteran, Mike Burns, who was a prisoner in the Hanoi Hilton for 54 months, he... You know, we talk about a lot of things on this episode and uh, goes into detail about his capture and about the things that took place in at the Hanoi Hilton. You know, the beautiful thing about this country, and you'll hear Mike so eloquently talk about the freedoms that we enjoy, but also about the things as citizens that we should be involved with as well, uh, as far as civil duty and the things that we can do at home to be courageous. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I sure did. And I appreciate you listening to Straight Outta Combat Radio. Your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night You were born to fight You gotta light them up My name is John Krotek, and I want to welcome you to Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. Save us all burn it down. Our guest today on Straight Out of Combat Radio is United States Air Force aviator and veteran Michael T. Burns. Originally from Fort Wayne, Indiana, Mike graduated from DePaul University in 1966 and volunteered for Vietnam. After his pilot training, Mike was stationed in Ubon, Thailand, as an F-4 Phantom fighter pilot. On his 18th combat mission, Mike was shot down over North Vietnam, was captured by enemy forces, and spent 56 months as a prisoner of war in North Vietnam. Mike was repatriated in 1973. For the past 30 years, Mike has resided in southern or southwest Florida, practicing as an attorney, specializing in the area of family law and criminal defense. He is a founding member and current vice president of Florida Veterans for Common Sense. I humbly welcome Mike here to Straight Out of Combat Radio. Hi, Mike. Hi, hi, John. How you doing? I'm doing great. You know, I I'm so glad to to have you on our show and you know I know that your story is important to our listeners out there but you know like we do what we're trying to do is we're trying to diminish the negative stereotype of our combat veterans and certainly your error of combat veterans really had a rough go of it when you came back but you know before we get there tell me a little bit about the Burns household well okay um well First thing I remember is living in Fort Wayne, Indiana. We had uh, seven kids. I had six siblings. First five were boys. Second, the last two were girls. I was number two. Um, Mom's a housewife. Dad was a traveling salesman. Didn't make much money, really. We had a, you can see it on you can look it on Zillow, I think, and see this little house, two bedroom, one bath, that um, we all stayed in until uh, Dad was able to clean up the attic. 
knock a bunch of stuff out, lay some tile. Somebody gave us some bunk beds, so the boys slept upstairs. The girls had the extra bedroom. We were, you know, Sacred Heart Catholic Church. It was an altar boy, I believed. Um, one of the couple years in Pennsylvania, when I was in seventh, seventh and eighth grade, um, we moved up. Dad's work he didn't work out. It seems like John. It seems like we were always kind of moving at night, but I don't know. We did and <laughs> got back. Um, went to a Catholic high school. I got a partial football scholarship to Northeast Missouri State Teachers College and uh, went there for a semester. Then a semester, um, my second semester of freshman year at St. Joseph's Rensselaer. Then family moved to Greencastle, Indiana. I I attended DePaul University, lived in town. It was a great school then. It was like a, it was just quiet, small, and uh, unpretentious. Uh, wealthy kids went there, but they had room for people like us. And uh, so I got to um, got a college education. I remember in grad school, I'm sorry, high school when I graduated. <laughs> My not my dad. My mom said, "You want to go to college?" And I said, "Yeah, I think so." She said, "Well, we can't help you. You know, that we don't have the money." I said, "I know, I know. I'll think of something." The partial scholarship got it started. About five hundred bucks from an uncle for a second semester in Greencastle. I worked. Worked at IBM. Worked at Murphy's Five and Ten. Watched the house. I worked about two jobs the whole time. And best of all, I got to play football the last two years there. Um, it's a small college, no scholarships. And if, if you, if you stay in school and if you keep a C average, you can play. That was my, that was my release for, um, you know, tension or whatever, playing football. We played Ball State. Um, we played the Camp Lejeune Marines. Played Indiana State. I mean, big schools. Evansville, a couple of small schools, but we competed with um, big schools and we did okay. What was your position? What was what position? Halfback, deep, defensive halfback. Ah, that was the best position yeah. for me. You must have been pretty quick then. Well, quick enough for this. This it's um it's a division three and a half, maybe <laughs> division four. I'm not sure. But right now, you can watch the biggest game of the season down there, John, was Wabash versus DePaul. Every year, it's the last game of the season, and it's called, believe it or not, the Monon, Monon Grill Classic. There's a bell off of a choo-choo train, a, a steam engine that whoever wins gets the bell. And how many the, years? How many years they've been playing that, Mike? We played a hundred, about a hundred and I'd say five, six, seven, eight years. Wow. Um, I went down for the hundredth anniversary. It was uh, Sports Illustrated because they're both real old colleges. The Wabash was all boys and it's co-ed now, but, and it's, we could lose every game in the season. And if we beat DePaul, it was a winning season. And we had a great coach. Tom Montz. He used to play quarterback for the Washington, I think it was the Redskins. Wow. Just a 
shit hot super guy. Um, I'm not sure if there's anything else in there. Well, who um, who were your mentors growing up? And you know, was there military in your background and your family? Well, all my uncles served in the war. Um, Uncle Bill was infantry. He was in the Battle of the Bulge. Uncle Paul was a Seabees, a Navy Seabees. Huh. Uh, my dad was a Navy mechanic. Uncle John was a fighter pilot, a P-40 jug pilot. I think it's a P-40. Um, he was a cop in Chicago after the war. You know, I didn't talk. Nobody ever talked about it. Dad, nobody. Nobody, none of my uncles, not that we asked. We were too immature and, and young to even say, hey, what what, what, did, what was war? What did you do? Why were you there? Yeah. And it kind of helped me later when I decided I wasn't going to talk at all about Vietnam, but I thought I should at least try to reflect accurately what I saw, what happened, let people decide whether it was good, bad, ugly, whatever. But it was partly because nobody talks about it. So how did you, okay, so you had it in your background, and how did you get to Vietnam? Well, one of the few things I remember as a boy in Indiana was watching black and white World War II films, and I can still see that P-51 in the clouds rolling inverted and diving diving through the clouds at some target down there. And I don't know if I got the chills watching that, but I never thought I'd fly. I had no idea I'd be in the military, really. Actually, my brother, my oldest brother, was uh, Air Force for four years. He was uh, something in Greece. He was, uh, I don't know what he did. wasn't flying. Then then I, uh, after, uh, as a senior in college, I joined ROTC Air Force on DePaul campus. You know, John, because I didn't know what the hell I was going to do out of school. And I thought, well, at least I'll have a job. Right. Well, then they came through with this written, uh, visual test for pilots. Uh, they needed pilots, and they say, look at this picture. What's the airplane doing? You know, it'd be a picture of the altitude indicator. And it's so simple. I said, well, it's in a climbing left-hand turn. 100, you got 100, you can be a pilot. So, um we got 12 hours of flying as a as a senior in college in this little airport just outside of Greencastle. And uh, so I went down to the first flight. And I think I've, I don't even know if I ever flew in an airplane before that date. So I um, met the instructor, young guy, a little older than me, got in a, got in a plane with another student. Hmm. And uh, first the student was going to ride First, he was going to fly with the instructor. I got him back. So we take off. It was low. It was low clouds. It was rough. We pounded around up there. I was scared to death. And it just shook the airplane silly. And we finally came in and landed. And I was so relieved. I said, okay, great. I'm sure (laughs) we're not going to go back up in the back. And the instructor got on. He says, all right, Burns, get in front. Your turn. And so we took off. And got up in there, and you know my knuckles were white holding that wheel. And he said, "All right, give me a give me a 360 degree turn to the left." So I'd go into this about a 10 degree bank, and it took about a minute or two minutes to make this circle. 
Then he said, all right, give me the airplane. When I say a 360-degree turn to the left, this is what I mean. And he just wrapped that thing into a 60-degree bank turn and jerked it around in about five seconds. Wow. <laughs> I'd be white-knuckling so, it, too. So I'm not sure what happened after that. I I did it. You know, I, I did it. But we came down and landed. And the strangest thing, John, when I climbed out of the airplane, it's like a light went on inside. I thought, God. Dang, that was great. I just like a candle lit inside. I thought, geez, that was fantastic. So I I knew then, I knew then that I I just gotta graduate and I can they're gonna send me to pilot school. So I did. I got to went to a what do they call that, uh ninety day wonder camp in the summer. Went to pilot school in Enid, Oklahoma. It was a great year. Once we got past that, that second ride, it's just amazing. It was just as scary as the first. But when we landed, it just came all over me about this is me. This is what I'm going to do. Well, So I loved pilot school and uh, uh, never thought I'd be in the military in the first place. Then I never thought I'd make a career out of it. I could fly jets. And um, I knew less than nothing about Vietnam. So honestly, I was in a Went to college, a college graduate. I don't think I read one thing about Vietnam, except I knew it was going on. I watched the demonstrations. I was kind of on the police side, breaking them up. I really was. I was saying, you know, those guys ought to, shouldn't be doing that. So when you got deployed, when you forgot your orders, you know, as a young pilot, fighter pilot mm-hmm. to deploy, what were you thinking? What What was going on in your head? Well, that. You know, when you graduate from pilot school, it's one year, 52 or 53 weeks, they send you a dream sheet, a list of all the airplanes in the Air Force inventory. Pick your airplane. Well, there were about eight pilot schools, and they were dumping out lots of pilots. And uh, that year, 66, they only had a couple of, I mean, there was a dozen or so single-seat fighters, a couple of 102s, F-102s, a couple of F-106s, a couple F-100s, more F-105s. Those are single-seat fighters. And I, I chose all of those first. And then it came to the F-4, which is a two-seater. And the policy was, you spend the, you spend the tour in the first tour in the back seat. You go in the back seat, you get either 100 missions over the north, then you come home and upgrade any plane you want, or, or you stay in for a year if you don't get the 100 missions. Come over and upgrade. So, Actually, John, I wasn't going to choose that force. I wasn't going to ride in any pilot's back seat. That was just out of the question. We had this great class commander who was, uh, he had experience in the Air Force. He was older. He was a navigator coming back, going to pilot school. He graduated real high, and he said, Mike, you want to be a fighter pilot, right? And I said, yeah. Well, just go in the F-4, take the F-4 in the back seat. You'll get 100 missions. You know, you get it less than six months. You come back and, you know, you'll be, you'll get the airplane you want. Hmm. I, so I moved it up from last. I mean, I'd chosen all these puddle jumpers and, uh, things that hauled animals and ammunition and people. So I moved the F4 up front and that's what I got. And so that, I went to F4 school and I volunteered for, um, there's, they called it a pipeline. It was a hurry up school. You go through F, backseat F4 school. You go through the survival schools. Right after that, there's a couple, one in D- Washington State, one in um, 
Florida, the water survival off Homestead. Then you go to the Philippines, another jungle survival school, and then you they dump you off in Vietnam. But actually, my base was Thailand, Ubang, Thailand. Still, didn't know much about Vietnam. I wasn't. I was only interested in flying. And um, where I could care less, why I, I just wanted to fly. So that's how I got to Ubon, Thailand, and it's a jungle base, little town nearby. It's hotter than blazes there. The triple nickel, the 555th Tactical Fighter Squadron, was there, and they just moved that whole squadron out to another base. That was Robin Olds. Um, he was a big name. He was a big ace in Vietnam. Yeah. It was his outfit. And my, um, but they left a couple of pilots behind who were in their 90s, you know, close to 100 missions. You get 100 missions over the north, you come home. So I got assigned, uh, I flew with a couple guys, but I got assigned to this major, Crumpler, Carl Crumpler, nice guy. He was like on his 96th mission, hmm. and so they let him stay behind. I was in the 433rd Tactical Fighter Squadron. They call this Satan's Angels. Kind of interesting. And, you know, he was he was experienced, um, hard-ass. He was just wanted to get his missions in. So that's who I went up with when uh, we were and, shot down. Well, you were a captain at that time? No, I was a just-turned-first lieutenant. I mean... I think a week after I got Uban, I was told, maybe a week before, but right in there, I was um, became a first lieutenant. So, so and, yeah, I didn't realize. I thought that I thought that everybody that went up in in the cockpit was a was at least a captain, but I guess I was wrong. No, no, heck, um, well, maybe um, because they were pulling guys out of desk jobs. That's what really irritated me at the time. I mean, some of us had got a bit of an attitude. Not about the war, but about being in the backseat to a guy who flew a death for the last five years someplace. But they just had priority. And hell, coming out of pilot school, John, your your senses, your, your flying ability is probably at its sharpest because you're always being graded. You're always being, um, you know, measured. And and you come down, you get debriefed on the turns, the angle, the speed, your altitude, and and, you know, when you get up out of pilot school, you know, it's kind of the Wild West. And, you you know, you, you um, nobody's grading you, but you learned all these things. And some of the skills can get, I think some of those guys didn't know what the hell they were doing, shouldn't have been in the front seat. But um, that's a long time ago. Yeah. Crumpler should have. He was, he was a fighter pilot. I mean, he was, he'd probably, if he didn't get shot down, he'd probably go back and come back get, you know, some R&R or something and come back. But I don't know that for sure. That's that's the guy I was with when we were shot down. Talk to me just, a, you know, briefly about the day that you guys were shot down. Sure. Um, it was July 5th, 1968. Well, July 4th, uh, they changed the commander, base, new base commander. The old base commander was uh, a Mormon, and he couldn't say the F word in the club. But new base commander was... Uh, a twin, somebody, he was a general, so was two of them, I mean, but he was an Italian guy, I can't remember his name, and um, the esprit just went up immediately, so there was a big, big party in Uban, Thailand, Fighter Officers Club, and the, 
The next day, the 5th, we went out on our mission about, about 2 o'clock. It's just, uh, so that's 1968, and I think that was the bombing halt going on. Johnson gave the Air Force from the 17th, which is the DMZ, up to the 18th parallel. Right. That was ours, and from the 18th to the 19th, something like that was um, the Navy's, and then after that, Vietnam. And the mission... That mission was a two-ship, kind of a standard mission. Two F-4s take off six 750-pound bombs, rockets, and a couple of Sparrow missiles for air-to-air stuff. And the, I, we're assigned roads and rivers and bits of seacoast, and you fly out to them, get down to about 5,000 feet. Well, first of all, you get up to 20,000, refuel. So you got a full tank when you start. And... Throughout the war, they had these C-135 stealers. They make a big football field sort of oblong track. They just fly forever. And fighters come up on the way to the target, fuel up, and they come up on the way back from targets and, and fuel up to make sure they get home. So we got our fuel, these, the two of us, and headed off to our uh, assigned roads. And we were driving up and down. This is the 18th mission. It was kind of like the other missions, you bank up to 60 degrees, look down this road, then you bank back the other way, follow the road, look for anything, bridges. Crumpler saw him first. He said, uh, those are those are guns down there. And I could see him at the base of this hill. I think I could see him because um, he, he said, tell me where to look. So then uh, he started jockeying the airplane, got it out, got it up to about, well, we were doing about 500 knots pulled out of ways, and we rolled inverted at 5,000 feet and start down. They told us, you know, there was, uh, what they call it, rules of engagement. Because so many, you know, we've been bombing North Vietnam for since 1964, that everybody down there, every, every woman, man, peasant, kid had a gun, slingshot. Uh, there were Chinese and the aircraft guns. Junk they'd throw up in the air with for and and they shot down airplanes that way because you hit a fuel line you hit a hydraulic line you know you, you wound this airplane and um so we're supposed to start at fifteen thousand feet they say roll in bottom out at five thousand feet well we started at five thousand feet and went right down into the weeds Pickle dropped off the bombs and just cleared this ridge by about a 200 feet, doing about 600 knots. This, this F-4 it has energy. It picks it up going down, mm-hmm. and it has a zoom. I don't, I don't know the aerodynamics, but it could out-zoom about anything, going straight up. So we, we, we dropped the bombs, went, rolled up, and as I looked back over my left shoulder to see where the bomb hit, if I reached outside of the cockpit, if I could have touched it, well, the back two-thirds of that F-4 was a ball of fire. Just everything was on fire. couldn't see the tail. So I told uh, Crumpler, I said, we're hit. Head for the water. He said, what? I said, we're burning. Head for the water. So we started out for the water, and it got real quiet. Both of us kind of heavy breathing. I looked back, and I could see the fire was out, but there was this column of smoke coming out of the engine spiraling onto the engine, so we knew there was still a fire somewhere in the airplane. We kept going, 
and one engine wound down, stopped working. We had the other engine in afterburner, and uh, at some point, we got up to about 8,000 feet. I could see the South China Sea. If we could get out there, we had a good chance of getting picked up. But at some point, the engine, uh, and I know why, because they told me later, but the airplane slammed hard down and threw me up against the canopy, and then it, the nose jerked up real high, like a 60 degrees high, yeah. and threw my, bounced my face off my lap. And the airplane was just standing there in the air, um, hovering, one engine and burner, and uh, Crumpler was yelling, hold it. We were both on the stick trying to shove that nose over. We were both on the rudders trying to rudder it over because if you had one engine and only rudder, you could roll that engine, roll that airplane, get it going down, roll it back, and you could do loop-de-loop on your way out. Then uh, it fell out of the sky. The, the, uh, it just fell. And I saw the earth and the blue sky and the clouds roaring by the uh, cockpit and in a very calm voice crumpler says you want to leave it and i said yep and he said are you ready and i said yep and he said let's go so we both pull those handles there's a couple ways to do it but the one that's quickest is right between the legs and the seat there's a metal handle you pull that thing and the canopy pops off both of them pop off in less than a second, it goes, it goes bang. The enemy's gone. And in less than a second, there's a charge under that iron seat. It blows you out of free of the airplane. It's a 14 or 16 G. Bang. Instant Gs. And then rockets on the back of the seat take you to a 4 G rocket ride, about two to 300 feet, depending on your weight and how fast you're going. So we, when that thing starts, I blacked out. It's a 4 G rocket ride that's Four Gs is really nothing if you're ready for them. You can keep from blacking out, but I, who knows who in the hell knew what was going to happen. And, and um, I heard popping. I felt things. And when I got my vision back, I was hanging in the chute. Everything was totally automatic. Coming down through the clouds, I could see Crumpler way over there. Coming down through the clouds, he's big. He's a real big guy. He was coming down a little faster. And I landed in a field, brand, uh, wide open fields, scrub bushes like knee high or that's about it. Rocks, perfect landing shoot, a perfect landing roll. You know, they, this is an aside, John, but the sergeant back somewhere in survival teaches us pilots how to land if we have to bail out. You know, we jump off things about two feet high and he teaches us how to legs together roll. So I came down. It was perfect. And you won't believe this, but I got this image of that sergeant's face in my a flash image of him smiling, saying, God damn, that's a good, good landing, Burns. I can definitely believe it. I mean, the things come back to you like that, you know? So, essentially, I gathered my parachute together and buried it. I did everything I was trying to do. Called, we got these radios in our pockets, this big radio in our, down by our, uh, uh, by our feet, really. I called the other airplane. I said, this is Burns. I'm on the ground. I'm okay. And he said, we didn't see your parachutes. Give us a position from, give us your position from that smoke over there. 
that smoke over there was a it was a column of black smoke rising up. It was at the top of a hill. It was our F4 burning. And so I dropped my compass on the ground, looked, I said, 045, about two miles. He said, parting words, I knew this was, I knew this was bullshit. I knew there was nothing going to happen, but he, he said, all right, um, head, head west. We'll try to pick up in the morning, but, but there was, I knew there was nothing west. You know, you had to run for 24 hours nonstop to get to some high country, but that's what I did. I started running and, uh, I ran out of breath. I, I felt like, damn it, I'm really out of shape. But I still had my G-suit on, this fast pants that grip your legs hard when you pull G's. Well, it's tight. So I stopped, took my G-suit off, stuffed that under a rock, and kept running. And by the way, coming down in that chute, I could hear this snapping sound going by. Well, well, I didn't know what it was. But later I heard these people said those are bullets. That's the, when they... They break the sound barrier. Maybe that's BS, but that's what they said it was. You know, pretty early on in this race to nowhere, I heard ground fire. I could hear guns just boom, boom from all different directions. And I couldn't see anybody. It seemed like they were far away. So I had to hide. It was only about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, bright. So I found the only... It was probably the only 12-foot-high bushes within 20 miles. Well, it's a clump. The only place to hide, I crawled into it, did what they told me in survival school, pulled all the weeds up behind me so no one could see me in there. And I sat down and waited. I just sat there, and it got quiet. And I took my thirty-eight out. We carry these thirty-eight caliber pistols. And I looked at it. And I said, if there's somebody between me and a helicopter, I'll use this. But I don't need it right now. I just set it in the dirt. Right, I don't know, half an hour, just got real quiet. And pretty soon, I heard this uh, crackling behind the weeds crackling. And I turned around. And this this pile of bushes was probably like uh, um, what's it, you know, 20 feet across. You know, it was a, in diameter, 20 feet. And so this, I turned around and I saw this ancient... Vietnamese man in a black t-shirt, black shorts, no gun, nothing, just they sent him in. He'd, he'd take two steps in, then lower himself and look through the weeds. He took two more steps, and pretty soon his eyes met mine, and he just had this tremendous look of fear, and he yelled and fell backwards. By the time I turned around, there were about five these militia guys piled through that bush. They're all standing around the outside of it. I never heard them. And I was looking up the barrel of these AK-47s, and that's how I was captured. Well, it must be, you know, one hell of a shock to be up there one minute and to be on the ground and a couple hours later be in enemy hands. I mean, what a shock. It's like, from that point on, I felt like a hunted animal. I felt like I was... Looking on back of my head, both sides of my eyes, they drugged me out, took all my clothes off except my shorts, took my boots, tied my elbows with wire, and 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 then it started. You know, then it it started. We walked. They kept me away from villages because I think. Well, I can tell you that we we kept sort of we go around villages and sometimes go off the trail through bits of jungle and field 
So we didn't, weren't seen. There was like three guys, three, they're young, all had AK-47s, fifth helmet, like these white beater t-shirts, white, white, uh, and, uh, gray pants and sandals. Well, then it started and, you know, they got to figure out where to, how we get me to Hanoi and, um, when did you, it took about, Oh, I'm sorry. When did you see Major Crumpler again? Was it was it in Hanoi? It was, or was, uh, was you guys? Re- it was a couple hours after I was captured. They he found a log or something he hid under, and they saw his boot. He got a little bit long, uh, place to hide, so they put us together. Then they would powwow, and you know, sit down and talk to you know a little bit away from us, and uh, trying to figure out w- which way to go. And so it took John. It took. 35 days to go from shoot down to get to Hanoi. I mean, on a, on a bad day, it's probably a day and a half truck ride. Mm. But where we were, there were still F4s and F105s driving around at 5,000 feet looking for trucks. You know, the roads were covered, so we could only move at night. And, um, finally, there, there's a whole history of things that happened that I thought were pretty interesting during those 35 days before we got to the the prison, the institutionalized prison, the interrogation rooms, the, you know, the, you know, you're really a number when you get there. And so um, we would go from village to village. They, they, they'd hold me out here. One of the guys would disappear in the weeds. And I could hear screaming and yelling come from that way, and he'd come jogging back in motion. We had to hurry and get out of there. One time, uh, we were on a road, and this dirt road, and this Vietnamese peasant came running down the road full speed, screaming, and he picked up a big rock and, and on the run threw it. Good aim, hit me right in the back. And then he grabbed the AK-47 of the first guard and tried to get it away from him, and they, one of them put his gun on his shoulder and got around behind him and bear hugged him and picked him up and walked him away. And he was screaming and, and crying. And finally, um, we got to a place where I was held for 20 days. I had a cave. It's, a, it's underground. The whole hooch, the whole village was. The only thing above the roof, above the ground was the thatched roof. But it's about 10 feet deep, like by 20 by 15. Uh, and on one end, there was a cave about three feet high, six feet deep. That's where they put me. And the other side of it, there was a cave about three feet high, 20 feet deep. That's where Crumpler was. I kidded him later, years later, about why he got the better cave, because <laughs> I figured it was just his rank. I mean, I had, to, they gave me my boots back and my flight suit. And I kept those boots on my hands to block sticks and and rocks and because the whole village all day long would pour through there to look and he could hide back there. He just he was back there in the dark. Um, so I stayed there for twenty days. What kept you guys focused? What during that time period to Hanoi? What kept you focused? focused. Well, keeping alive. Um, and even in that village, in that cave, you just, your senses are listening for every different sound. They, there was a post in front of each cave that supported the roof. 
they bring us out every day, tie me to that post, you know, sitting down. And they let the whole village countryside troop through and look and kick or grab your hair and try to walk off with your head or take a swing. And you just watch them. And I saw a woman coming in. She had a big knife behind her back. And God didn't see it. He was in his hammock. And I, I started yelling at Crumpler. I said, Carl, she's got a knife. Watch it. She was heading for him. And the guard just came rolling out of that, out of that place where he was and got in front of her. They treated their old people with respect. I mean, he, he talked to her. She was seething mad and he kept backing her up and holding her wrist and he finally got the knife from her and that was gone. And, uh, hmm. then when they fed us, it was just some sort of, I can't remember. It was something ricey. Um, but anything was good then. It just gobbled down this food. But whenever they fed us, who, whatever was going on, whatever yelling or harassment or they'd all just, nobody said back off. They all just sort of backed up and stopped and stared. No talking. I just watched. Or if the guard gave me a cigarette, if, if there was harassment going on, the same thing, they'd back off and not bother you while you're smoking. So I tried to smoke a lot, and a lot happened down there. There was a village we went to. Well, on the 21st day, they hustled us out of there. And by that time, Goble James, an F-105 pilot, they drug him in about 10 days after I was there. And he looked, he looked like he was a burnt piece of toast to me, the dirty his leg was stiff. He broke his leg on bailout. And he was, he just sat there without moving. We couldn't talk. They wouldn't let us talk to him. He was across that floor and he, um, he wouldn't move. I found out later. He's a very good friend of mine. He's 10 years older, but he's part Indian from Oklahoma. Yeah. And that's, that was just gobble. I mean, he could sit, spider webs could start working things on his head because he wouldn't. He just had this ability to not, not move. And so they came for the two of us, threw us on the back of a truck one night while it's loading some, one of our jets dove on the, the road just ahead of us. And you know, uh, it was dark. I just, no way he could see anything. It wasn't up there, but he dropped the cluster bomb unit, those CDUs that cover a football field. They just, they, they, come out of that um, big, that that bullet-shaped thing, it breaks open, and they fly down a cover of football field and go off individually, throwing steel around. And that stuff came right up to our truck, and you could hear it going, going by. Finally, it got dark again. They loaded us on, and we went, We they drove us to total, first night was west, to the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And then we started north, and just the road was bombed and i mean we all had we were black and blue but after that first night because with your hands behind your back tied you can't really do anything to protect yourself you just bounce around like a piece of popcorn and um we got to a place there was just the three of us in the car crumpler me and gobel they stopped got me off it with a gunpoint pushing me in the back 
down this dark little path to a village. It's at night. There's fires going. I can hear yelling and screaming. They shove me inside this hooch. This one is above ground. Yeah. And push me over to the side, and there's a, a form laying on the ground there. It's Bobby Fant. He was a Navy guy, and he was lying with a his arm, one arm was in a cast, muddy cast, and the opposite leg was in a cast. He'd broken an arm and a broken, broke his leg on bailout. So I got down and asked him, uh, hey, buddy, well, you all right? And he whispered something. He had his hand over his eyes, and he didn't move. I mean, his arm over his eyes. I couldn't understand him, so I got closer. All this screaming outside, and I said, you all right? I didn't hear you. And he said, do you like parades? You thought... You know, there was that 1966, they marched POWs through Hanoi, and uh, um, and the crowd, they lost control of the crowd, and the POWs ended up running for their lives for this football stadium. Well, mm. Bobby Fant thought they were going to march us through a parade, and uh, he and Goebel, well, they just wanted me to take care of them. They were tired. They wanted me to wipe his ass and uh, clean him up and drag him out of there and get him. I got him on my shoulders. I was in pretty good shape. I could firemen carry him out anywhere, and Gogol, too. They're about my size. Carried him out to the truck, threw him on, and the four of us started for Hanoi. One other time in a village, we we were, you know, they, in 68, they were bragging, Johnson was bragging about, we've interdicted their supplies south. It's only a matter of time. Well, we were on that Ho Chi Minh Trail in those mountains, and it was Hundred yard, hundred truck convoys going both ways, little tiny lights under their bumpers. But it was a, uh, it was like forty one at rush hour here. Except everybody was crawling. There's no way we were interdicting anything. And one time, on this sort of flattened out straight road, one of our jets flew right over. It was an F four because I could see the white bottom. Dropped flares right over that road and lit us up like the, like. Noon, sun, a sunny day at noon, and I could see all these trucks and the guards started yelling. All the trucks stopped. They came around, threw us off the, drug us off, ran us about. You run about fifty feet on e- any side of any road, and there's a ditch, uh, a trench, and we all got down in a trench, waited for that. I thought there's going to be a huge fire here once. There's no way they can miss this caravan that airplane went out and turned around he's looking he's the flare ship and about ten thousand feet there's another one with all the bombs and ordnance up there just waiting to him to tell him what to do and he went through that light twice and never saw anything the flares went out and we started on our way mm. so they there's so some you, other incidents but i don't want to go into all that all that well no i mean so you so you guys finally, I mean, 30-something days, you finally make it to Hanoi. Did you get there right. at night, or did, they, or did they end up parading you like that aviator said? Wait, what? Did, did, you, did they parade you through when you finally got to Hanoi, oh. or no? No, that, that happened before. That was the Hanoi March made spectacular headlines, um, but that was two years before. And when we got to Hanoi, it was high noon. It was July, dead heat, but we were in a truck covered with tarps. It was all dark in there, and so they, I, I felt the truck stop, back up, and they threw the tarp off, and it was so bright. And there were hundreds. They backed it up to the front gate, to the 
to the uh, Wallow, the Hanoi Hilton, the prison. And there were hundreds of Vietnamese that were just watching, and they got us off, and I looked at the portal. The entrance is just a dark, like a cave entrance. There's no lights behind it. I honestly thought, Jesus, I don't even want to go there. It looks like if you walk through that dark spot, you're going to fall into the abyss. But just weren't any lights. They got us in there, and then the, the rigmarole started. Um, they separated us. I was put in a interrogation room for a couple of weeks. Fant and James were put in another room. And... uh they they took me out of that room after I put me with Fenton James because neither one of them could walk. And uh, they didn't want to mess with them. They wanted somebody to be able to carry them to the wash rack. We were wash. We go to these cold water running wash racks once once a week. No, so we just throw water on us and so and empty the shit bucket. They had little black buckets. That was our laboratory, and so I was our nursemaid for, God, the time is starting to lose me a bit, but um, for a couple of weeks in this one room, and, you know, we were anxious to get in touch. We knew there were other, it's probably 150 POWs or 200 at the time, somewhere in there, but um, we were sort of held away from them. And we had some military-style interrogations. I don't think they bothered Fenton Jameson because they were just sort of miserable. Finally, they uh, we ended up, the three of us, in a cell in a, a part of the Hilton we called Thunderbird. These guys are all fighter pilots, fly out of Nellis Air Force Base in Las Vegas. It's a fighter weapons training school, and so everybody knows Hotels, the Sunset, uh, the Mint, and this was the Thunderbird, and they put us in the cell, the three of us. This is August now, 68, and I could hear men coughing and making men's noise, but I, we had no idea how to get a hold of them. And then January, at, at noon, they have a gong that goes off, and they have a, they take a, a fiesta, one hour, the whole town. You can hear trucks and traffic over that 18-foot wall, but when the gong goes off, and within minutes, it's dead silent, and they have a skeletal crew on the guards. They all do go somewhere. And so this one January, I could hear this somebody whispering, it sounded like cell four, get under your door. There was about a two-inch gap under our these thick doors. So I got down... Fant got up in the window. He had to stand on James's head to find the guard. And I looked across, and it was shiny, bald head and blue, twinkly eyes of Captain Jerry Marvel. He was a Marine Corps guy that told us where we were, told us who was in every cell, asked us about ourselves, whispering. Then he gave us the tap code, and he said, practice it and get up on the wall tonight. And so we did. We practiced the tap code because we could hear bumping and thumping and sound like a woodpecker convention at night. One of my <laughs> friends said, and, um, 
So we learned it, and, you know, you start with the shave and a haircut. And then if you get two bits, it's clear. If you get a thump, it's danger. So now we were on this system, and we, you know, we can now, we felt like we were in the system somewhere. They knew we were here. They had our names. That was half the battle, just not disappearing, making sure that other people, other prisoners knew, knew you were there. So that's when it started, John. I mean, that's when it started. There were, we get up at, every cell had a loudspeaker, a for a loudspeaker up in the corner that it would crackle. I'm guess, it was dark. I'm guessing six in the morning. I don't, didn't have a clock. You hear it crackling on. And then it was like two decibels above the threshold of pain. Somebody described it of propaganda shit. They had a big fight down in country. hundred F-4s were shot down. 10,000 Americans were killed. It was just news like that every day and for an hour. Then at noon, same thing. You couldn't hear yourself think. You couldn't even talk in the cell. It was so loud. And wow. then one about six at night. So that started the rigmarole. You know, obviously the days turn into months. They turn into years. And, you know, what, you know, it's definitely an experience that a very small percentage of human beings ever have to go through. You know, what... What do you? What did you learn? You know, Mike. What what impacted you the most? What was the experience being in the Hanoi Hilton? What did you learn about yourself and about humans? First of all, John, it took a while. I would go up to the wall of that cell. It's like nine by twelve. Thinking this is a dream. I know I'm going to wake up from this. I mean, honestly, and. I'd go poof, and I'll wake up, and I'll be home. But that never came. And for those first months, almost a year, I, I they were harsh with us. I'd heard they'd been torturing people. We heard through the grapevine. Somebody got 500 lashes somewhere with a fan belt. There was a place called the Dark Hole. Uh, I was put next to Robbie Reisner in a cell, in an interrogation cell, for a couple of days, they caught us communicating, and that's how I was being punished. And But Reisner tapped on the wall and was told me he was ropes, iron bars. Well, I know the ropes and iron bars. I, I forgot to mention, in a, um, in a village on the way to Hanoi, right outside of Hanoi, is where we met our first interrogators. And my guy was really, I mean, really smart, hardly had a accent, always a smile on his face. And it was, what's your name? What's your rank? So it's your number, date of birth. Easy questions. What airplane were you flying? I said, well, I can't tell you that. All this shit they knew. What base were you in? Ah, I can't tell you that either. So he'd start over, and about the third time around, he'd motion to the guard. So down I went with uh, um, ropes on the wrist and behind the elbows, and they they pull it way back someplace and put this iron uh bar with uh, iron leg legs leg locks on on my ankles and they wrap it all together behind me someplace and well kick and stomp and uh the guys calmly talking what's your name what's your name rank your number and i could hardly speak i mean it was slobbering and um and then it went on into the night they they'd stop it 
take the ropes off. And when the blood came back, that even hurt as much as the, as the ropes when they were putting them on. And then they'd come back in an hour and, uh, name ranks your number, date of birth. I uh, wish I could help, but I can't. And same thing, only different. I was, anyway, that went in deep into the night. And at some point I was stuck to this post. I wasn't even on the ground. My, my arm, my wrist and my ankles were tied to something way back there, so I was suspended against this post, and he started kicking me in the testicles, saying, you will be crippled forever, and uh, at some point, I thought, this guy is nuts, um, I mean, what thinking I could do, I thought I could do all that other stuff, it just, you got numb after a while, but this was different, and so I uh, said, at four, said, four. I just decided to keep my story straight, try to not say much, Try to remember what you tell them and try to keep your story straight. And they don't let you out right away. They don't want you to have control of when it stops. So I'm thinking they're going to untie me pretty soon. No, it goes on. Finally, they did and drug me back to uh, the other guys because I could hardly walk. And I've been carrying Gobel and Bobby Phantom, my fireman's carry, and, and switching off with Carl. He didn't have any injuries, so we were firemen carrying these guys all the way up from the DMZ south of here, and I, there's no way I could anymore. I, I couldn't carry anything for, it took up a couple of weeks to get my strength back, and so that, that's what, when Reisner was saying ropes, iron bars, I knew exactly what I was talking about. And I'm not sure how I got on that. We got back to the cells. Then, it seemed like every six to eight months, they had a purge where they'd go through and certain people were pulled out and told to wrap up their rice mats and blankets and you'd get blindfolded and put in a truck, driven someplace or else just moved to a different place in the prison camp and, and you'd have to reestablish communication or figure out where the note drop was or what walls you could we're safe to tap on. 56 months of that is more than enough. And, you know, I mean, one day is more than enough. But, you know, when you first learned that you were coming home, mm-hmm. back to the United States, what was that like? Well, there were so many rumors. Uh, Ho Chi Minh died October, I think, 69. When he died, they took everybody out of solitary confinement. Everybody they were pressuring or torturing, put them back in the cells and left us alone for like 10 days. It was like we didn't know what was coming next. In the 10th or 11th day, it seemed easier. They seemed to go a little easier on us. There were uh, isolated events of torture where somebody, some camp commander would drag some up. I heard Dick Stratton getting whipped um, for something, and I don't know what it was, but but it wasn't the systematic stuff. And then they, we got bananas. And everyone thought, God, this is, you know, trying to fatten us up. We're going home. It was like 69 or 70. And then a dark cloud would come over the prison and somebody would get abused or, uh, they wouldn't let you out. And it was, ah, shit. You know, we're still stuck here. And, and it was up and down a lot of times. And, you know, you have to figure out, at least I did, I had to have a system of dealing with this because, uh, it is hard thinking maybe there's hope and then it's dashed, quashed and you got, you're left with nothing. You've got to re, reinvent something. So I decided that 
we're a very powerful country. We got unlimited funds. We can the dry season. We can beat them back in South Vietnam. The wet because we got air power. The wet season airplanes are no good. The ground we lose all the ground again. I thought that could go on for a long time, John. So I set my I set my clock for like 20 years. I honestly did. I, I can't do this up and down shit. And I I was going to walk out of there with my heart and my head intact if it took 20 years. And you know, some guys had two months from yesterday. Global was in six months. Things will change, and I just uh, was um, impervious to that. But then, summer of '72, uh, they moved 200 of us, me included, up to the Chinese border, 10 miles inside the Chinese border. It was an old—I'm not sure what it was. It was half underground. It looked like a mausoleum, little buildings half underground. My heart sank. It was 24 hours in the truck, tied up. We, I could hardly stand when we got there, but there was no electricity. They had a pipe of running water, and, and, and they put us in these cells. Total darkness. You had to feel your way around to see how big it was and walk cautiously, make sure there wasn't any hole in the floor. Well, that's where we stayed until the end of the war. And, and one day, the camp commander opens the door in January, he saw smiles, and this is the bug we called him. He had an eye that was kind of loose or something. And he was in all the tortures. He opened the door, war's over, you're going home. Well, okay. And the night before, we saw him bring in an empty truck, so we knew there must be something more than just another rumor. And they loaded us up, took us back down off that mountain. This time, they stopped three times for, you know, to pee, gave us cigarettes. And brought us back to Hanoi and farmed us out like that. Really, there was about 21 guys who were going to die. I mean, they were bedridden, and they were carried around all the time. I didn't see them. But they got out first, and then there were three other groups. There was a, a February group of early shoot-downs, and then my group. It was the same group McCain was in, so I, that's when I met him. And then there was a fourth group, the guys that were shot down and toward the end of the war, and we were, we knew it was real. Well, we knew it was real because we even saw this blonde journalist woman over there, and we were all waving at her, and first woman we'd seen, and, but I'll tell you, John, he put us in buses, they gave us clothes, clothes like Bulgarian, sport coat, clothes that are bigger, too big for anybody, right? and a suitcase, <laughs> Drove us out to Jilam Airport, and I honestly, if they'd have gotten, drove us out there, if they would have stopped and said, all right, back to sell you guys, I was not going to be depressed down or anything on a set figures. But no, there was this big, beautiful, white, silver white C-141 with a big American flag on the tail sitting out on the runway. I knew this was different. And uh, so they called us one at a time. We'd go up, salute this colonel, shake hands, and somebody from the airplane walked us across the, to the bottom of it and into the airplane. Inside, there was this friendly flight nurse. When I walked up into it, there's this woman, this handsome woman, shook hands. I said, I said, what are you doing here? And she smiled and says, I'm your friendly flight nurse. I'll never forget that. <laughs> I kept in touch with her for about 15 years, just riding. She's out in California somewhere. And then we, they, they got us on this C-141 with a 
with a third group out, and there's guys in white, there's medics, and Navy, I guess mostly medics, standing around, and we just sat in our chairs, and one's really uh, excited, and you could, the doors closed, you could feel that airplane taxiing around, and taxiing around, and you threw you back in your seats, all four of those big engines, and it took off, and we're climbing out, there's no windows, we're all just sitting there, and it took one of those guys, one of those medics or someone to say, hey guys, it's over, you're going home. And that's what it took. And then we just erupted in cheers. And I got a great, I've got a picture of happy faces on that airplane. Somehow I, somebody sent it to me. But then we knew, then we knew. And I'll tell you, John, that time, you know, we stopped at the Philippines to get dewormed and checked out and get some food for three days, talked to our families long distance. Then we stopped in Hawaii and then home. But it was coming home from Hawaii, in that C-141, about 40,000 feet, we could go anywhere. I was up in the cockpit talking with the captain or with the pilots, and I could see the coast of California coming up, and I just watched it. And when it passed under me, that's when I knew it's all right. If we go down now, we'll be home. It doesn't then I was 100% sure. That is really a no, cynic, isn't it? No, no, no doubt. So, you know... That being said, I mean, you know, what does freedom mean to you, Mike? Well, I, I for about five years, I hardly slept. I would stay up, get up darkness, run five miles or six miles or seven miles, run, eat a huge breakfast, run all day, party all night, do the same for about five years. I just never I had a reservoir of life energy, but that's what I did. You know, it was took two years before I entered law school, but I still did it then. And, and freedom, God, I mean, I'll tell you one thing. You you won't believe this, but we were in this place called the Plantation. It was in 1970. It's a it's a, it's a great big courtyard, a big house on one end, a garage on the other, warehouses on all one side, and offices. They just turned it into a prison, put bars on windows, put uh, separated the rooms. In the 70s, there was this big march in some town in the States, anti-war march. So that that night, they strung a rope across and down, made squares in that courtyard, and hung blankets and tarps so that there'd be little boxes you could come in and sit down in, and you couldn't see the guy next to you. So they bring us out one by one, and they turned on a, there was a newsreel. It was a U.S. newsreel of this March, 1970 sometime, and I saw, for the first time, color. I mean, I, I know there was color, but all I remember is dark and gray in a prison camp. There is no color. But I saw red, yellow, uh, brilliant colors on clothes. Old people, young people holding hands, uh, girls, guys, all kinds of signs crowding the streets and marching these anti-war signs. And they showed us this to, uh, to work on our morale and, you know, break us down. And, um, a lot of guys really complained about, I mean, they never forgave, well, they forgive maybe now, but we're very angry that they would do this. But me, 
I went back into that cell when it was over and they closed the door. I started doing push-ups. I thought, Jesus, that was fantastic. That's my country. That's America. There's no other country. They can do that there. They couldn't do it here. They couldn't do it anywhere I knew. You can do that in America. I mean, they just gave me a couple more years uh, of up there if it lasted. Just knowing that that was happening, that's what freedom kind of means to me. And, um, and I know that there's clashes about the people who rose against the war. Um, but that's what the hell we were supposedly, we weren't really. But that's what they said we were fighting for. Well, it changed. It always, it changed, it went from one thing to another. Then it became fighting for our freedoms when nobody really was, this fourth world country wasn't, um, didn't give a rat's about it. But, um, that's when I felt, uh, uh, this great love of this goddamn, I thought I was so happy. I can't, I mean, I was doing push-ups. It wasn't about me anymore. It was about a thing that uh, existed that somehow through 200 years, I didn't think this, but I do now. Somehow we nourished it so that you could, people could do that. Well, you know, their, well, you know thanks for sharing that. You know, that. That is a, they didn't even know what they were doing, the effect that it had on you. And you know what, Mike, you're so, you're so correct that people that aren't American, that don't really understand how we operate here can't really understand that you know because i've had people ask me before you know what's it like in america and until you really come here and you breathe it and live it what you witnessed you would you would have no you know there's no control for that and that's an that's an incredible story because whether we like it or not that that is one thing that america that's what makes us stand out above the rest is that we have that capability to protest. You know, we got to keep it, John. We got to fight for that. I mean, people got their heads bashed in by some who don't think you should be able to petition a government if if you don't like what your what the your government is doing. But that's the essence of our country, and um, it's something that has to be protected. There is, you know, there's just two kinds of courage. I, I, I this is what I come to one is the military there there is wonderfully courageous things that guys do in the battlefield people did up there in the um prison camps um taking care of each other there is a real real courage and um bond but there's another kind of courage that i read this read this stuff it's not my words but it's civil valor that's what we this country needs there's a civil valor, courage. Most people just want to keep their heads down. Um, you know, they, uh, they, um, they don't want to, uh, uh, look up and see what's happening. And they, it just, they don't think that they can care or, uh, they want to fight for change or anything. But some people do, you know, I've had brother-in-law who is married to my sister. Uh, he didn't go to Vietnam, and uh, one time he came to me, and he said, Mike, you know, I'm just really sorry. I, I was just a downright dirty hippie, and I just, I really casket him. Don't you ever feel that way. You you have a right to do exactly what you did, and we're equal in that, that respect. People apologize for not going. God, don't you know, you know, John, you know how that, that war 
eventually t- turned. I mean, I-, I can tell you the history of our, our history in Vietnam. It's separate from the courage of the POWs. It's separate from the courage on the battlefield. Those are two things different. Uh, but but the, the reasons for the war, I mean, the, the, the way we got into it, only because we could, well, that's got to be thought of, too. And, I mean, if we're going to not have this happen over and over again, I guess we're kind of past that now. But um, I guess my point is that that what does freedom mean to me? It means the freedom to go out my street with some friends and with a sign and saying, no, I don't, I don't want this. This is wrong. Or, or I want this. We're going to demonstrate until you do it because that's our right as citizens. That's, that's what freedom is to me. And without having tanks show up, uh, or, uh, stormtroopers, state troopers, stormtroopers show up with batons, that's, that's what America is. That, that's really, I mean, that's it in a nutshell. And, um, it's worth I don't think know that we were fighting for that in Vietnam. Like we just we the POWs were fighting for the POWs. We were we were fighting for our own existence and survival. Then it's like the guys. I wasn't on the ground. When I have few talks I've given about Vietnam, I don't. I say if you want to talk about this, the ground war, talk to one of those guys sitting out there listening to me who, who carried a rifle and walked around the weeds. It's a different story, and and that's you'll get the straight talk from them. But I think that's what it's about: is this um, freedom? That's what freedom means to me—to speak without getting thrown in jail, to 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 have a say in your government as a citizen. That's the way it was set up. It's supposed to be that way. We elect people, and they, you know, they don't say we're going to go to war. They don't say hell. Get us in there because we are going to tee this country up and, and send our troops over. They say the opposite. And, uh, uh, but it doesn't take long before that. I don't know. I just think we're in a, I think our country is at a crossroads where people have to start getting really interested every day in their government, in their representative government. Well, that's a, that's a great point because, you know, a lot of the things that we don't talk about these days is the civil civil responsibility that you have pointed out. And, you know, if we do just take things for granted, not pay attention, you know, the, certain things might happen where we lose those individual rights. You know, and, you know, I've had guys, you know, I am a non-combat veteran. I'm an Army veteran, but I've had guys say, you know, don't just like you told your brother-in-law, they say, you know, the, you might have been the guy that stepped on something. The main thing is, is that you did, you know, you, you did what you had to do. And don't ever for one instance think because you didn't see combat that that makes you less of an American. But Exactly. But, yes. But let me say, you know, let me ask you this, because, you know, there's such a, you know, we, we read about in the papers, of course, what just happened, that bad thing that just happened in California where all those people got shot by that uh, service person. Yeah. You know, let me yeah. ask you this. You know, what do you want the general public to know in your in your own wisdom, being a prisoner of war, Mike, in your past? What do you want them to know about combat veterans? Well, I don't know that. Um, let's see. I think. Well, some of these. 
Was that guy, which one is this? Is this the guy at the hospital you're talking about, a guy out in California that the, killed 12 people? Yeah, that was the guy that went into the bar or the, the club, the yeah. nightclub, yeah. And he was a veteran, wasn't he? He was. Well, uh, I, I read this, it's not mine, but I, I'm always looking for the right way to express an idea. I don't have all the answers, John. I don't even pretend to. And uh, But there's a, there's a guy named Scott Camille who uh, lives in Gainesville. He was uh, part of the, uh, he was part of the uh, Winter Soldiers in 1972 that made this tape and they threw their medals at the White House. And But he was a sergeant over there. And, um, you know, he was, he killed his way out. He said once his friend got blown away next to him and he had his, his guts on, on, on him. He said, the only way I'm going to get out of here is to kill my way out of here. And he killed and killed. He's the head of Veterans for Peace in Gainesville now. But I read an article about him, about that Navy thing. And, and I mean, about that shootout, that, that killing in the bar. And there's, there's two veterans. One, both veterans have been trained by the government to kill. There's, they have several deployments. And what do you, what do we expect when, when these guys come back? You know, they, they call it the volunteer army, but once you're in, you can't get out. You're going to do a two, three, five, eight deployments and, and it's going to affect you in a very bad way. If you're on the ground, if you're the point man, if you're the, you know, uh, driving through the cities where nobody's got a uniform and a shot runs out and you fire back and kill a bunch of people and go up and some of them are kids and some of them aren't. It's going to affect you. And he said, like he said, well, we trained both of these men and that's what he, while they're in Iraq, they kill Iraqis. Nobody lifts, nobody says boo, but they come back and kill 12 people. Well, then, you know, it's a crazy veteran. It's a bad guy. I mean, we, we got to get rid of these bad apples. It starts before that. Um, please say your question again, uh, John. Please well, say just, your question again. Yeah, no, no, no. You, you're on the right track. You know, what do you, what do we tell the American public? You know, or or how can we make it better? Or what do we want them to really know about veterans? I think a government that cannot keep the peace is not a government worth having, and I think it's got to be recognized. You know, John Kennedy said once, and I've never really found the quote. So I could really be sure it was him, but I've heard it. He said that until someone else becomes a hero, not not a veteran, but somebody that tries to make peace gets the accolades. What I tell, what I want to tell people is, geez, you got to get, you got to keep your head up. You you got to get an interest in your government. You know, even Republicans, like Morning Joe says, people we can get them to vote against their interests any day. Fear. When you sense fear, when they're selling fear, stop. That should be your biggest key, because uh, that, uh, that sells, and that makes people do things that aren't in their best interest. It's a, every single one of us has got to say something, do something, write one letter, keep your head up. Uh, um, yes, there are some heroes from the battlefield. I, yes, there are heroes and that from that that experience and um i'm so glad i got to meet some 
And I'm so glad for the existence of Stone because it saved other guys' lives. You know, we're sort of riding on World War II. You know, we, we look at them in awe of what they train guys to run through steel in uh, Iwo Jima and assault head-on um, these heavily defended things by the Germans or the Japanese. It had to be done. It really had to be done. You know, is there any bit of advice, Mike, that you could give them if they're if they're running into difficulties making that transition, oh yeah, well sure, yeah. Um, they they need to be, uh, get into a group. I mean, I'm in this Florida Veterans for Common Sense, and uh, we're a terrific group. We don't really do the you know the therapy stuff, but we will help guide somebody into it. Um, well, we we started the veterans courts here. Uh, my our group it was started up in New York, and I think West Palm had one, but we. Three of us, Gene and Dennis Plews and myself, three Vietnam veterans, went to Judge Hayworth and got this veterans court off the ground. It was called Courts Assisting Veterans then, and we manned it, and uh, all the cops knew our guy, who he was, so when someone gets arrested, they'll ask you a veteran, yeah, they could call our guy. He would go interview them and see if it's the kind of thing we can do for him. When they come back, get into a group. Um, people come back. It depends on how they feel about things. If they uh, are lost, then there's a hotline, of course. The VA has, has a hotline. And by the way, I recently, about a year ago, met a retired Marine colonel, Mark McCabe, a retired Marine colonel who <clears throat> retired. He's three, three combat tours. He was a corpsman, but he's got shrapnel on the legs from Vietnam. And he's very, 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 I mean, he, the Marines are in his blood. But he fights the the uh, VA. He takes cases of people getting denied and roars and gets things done for them. Any veteran that thinks they need some help, they need some time, they need some assistance financially to, to, to get off ground zero, I, I will be I, come to me because he told me, Mike, when I when I met him, he said, Mike, give me the names of all your veterans who you think need something or are having trouble with the VA, and I'll take care of them. That's the kind of thing we need. We need a couple of Mark McCabe's around. Well, that's because great. He work. really does things for people. He's helped guys in my group. They they thank me for it. I said, Well, it's I'm just a conduit. Call call Mark and send him your thanks because. Uh, he, he represents the entire Seminole tribe. He's an advocate, the chief advocate to the VA for the Seminole tribe. He's done wondrous things for them. Some of the, you know, back in the discrimination days of the Indians, maybe he got drunk or something, so they get a dishonorable discharge. But while in the service, they threw grenades and shot and did good things. But they're buried. This, I'm talking about one case. This guy, uh, he was buried in a pauper's funeral. He wasn't given the Seminole Tribe's honor um, cemetery, a place of honor. And his daughter somehow found Mark, Mark and called him, and Mark went down there. He goes he, he goes into the records. He can do it from his computer, pulls him up, turned the whole damn thing around. They dug him up and put him in his place of honor. And since that time, you know, he's he represents the Seminole Tribe, and uh, he'll represent any veteran that uh, needs it. That that's the kind of thing I, I would think. If their family can't get them work, or if they are can't get their uh, GI benefits, because it, it's a you know you know John, 
the first try form is a denial, automatic denial, denial. If you're missing an arm, an eye, doesn't matter, denied. They make you do it again. And most people, like my brother Tom, who broke a leg in Vietnam, he he's younger brother. He went over to Vietnam when I was a POW. He got out of high school, joined the Army, volunteered for Vietnam, and tried to get his commanding officer to let him drop him into North Vietnam because they hadn't heard anything, and he wanted to try to find me. You believe that? He was a gunner on a helicopter, uh, uh, and he was running from a rocket attack when uh, he broke his leg, and they got shipped back, but they, they fixed it wrong. And for 40 years, he favored, mm. he had to favor his walk. And by the time he was 55 or 60, he was in miserable back pain. And they just denied it. Mark's, gonna, Mark's changing that. I don't know, for veterans, being in the Army, being in the service is a, is a calling. It's a professional calling. And there are standards to uphold. You try to do that, just like we do in our field, you do in your ethics. You're dealing with people only as a veteran. There's choices. Go up the deep end or try to beg. I don't know. Don't don't be alone is what I'd say. God, if you're having trouble, shit. Don't don't take it on alone. And most of the veterans that we've that have come to us, we've tried with them. We've set them up and sometimes they disappear. I remember this one little guy, a Marine, came to our meeting. It was a couple of years ago. And he read a poem. And it was a poem about losing his best friend and killing this 14-year-old Vietnam, uh, uh, Iraqi kid who was coming towards him with a gun. He warned him. He warned him. He warned him. And the kid kept, wasn't aiming. It just kept coming. So he blew him away and it somehow affected him. And I know he got arrested a couple of times, but... We went looking for him. You know, we're a bunch of old guys. People who come back from Iraq, Afghanistan, they see a bunch of gray-haired, balding old guys. They don't want really much to do with us. We've got, we can impart some wisdom, but they're looking for people their own age. And I don't know, so I guess I'm shooting my mouth off. No, no, I just, you know, I just, you know, really appreciate you being here on the show and, you know, everything that you've said is real and has merit. And all I can say is, is that I'm glad that you made it back safe. I know there's a lot of other people glad that you made it back safe. We talked about this earlier. You know, you didn't, yeah. You, yeah. you, you went and you, you, de- you defended the country, whether it was right or wrong is for another discussion. But the reality is, is that as you well pointed out, you know, it's an honorable profession we have a great yeah. country and a legacy that yeah. we need to uphold. And what I'm getting from you, Mike, today is that, you know, as a citizen and your message is, is to get involved. If you're having issues, find find people that can help you, obviously. But if but as a citizen, you're saying get be involved. And so I just again, thank you for being here on Straight Outta Combat yeah. Radio. I'm going to ask you back. How can people find out more about the Florida Veterans for Common Sense? Well, you can go to our website and, uh, Florida Veterans for Common Sense, all spelled out dot org. And, you know, it's not pretty yet, but it's, it's got our statement of particulars. It's got our, uh, we've recently done like six position papers that we think go right to national security issues that we try to, we try to educate ourselves and, and the community. And that's what we do in this group. That's part of it. 
and and you can see what we stand for. We we dreamed up these statement of particulars like God ten years ago, twelve years ago, and they still are exactly. It was, nothing's changed. We're we're really proud of what we do. We're getting some outreach. You know, Tallahassee Democrats. That newspaper has published some of our our materials, but we're we're slowly getting some uh, some traction around here. But yeah, join, call me if they want to, and I'll be happy to talk to them. Well, thanks for that, Mike. And uh, again, thank you for your time here today. Yeah. No time's valuable, yeah, yeah. and uh, looking forward to the next conversation and uh, going. And appreciate you being with us here today, Mike. Let's have a drink sometime. Let's do it, man. I'm looking forward to it. Before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free, and combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken. Yeah.